This is Jeff Mayhew. This is John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing really well, Jeff. Uh, one of my parenting wins today was that we moved a uh, jungle gym that I built at our old house, and then we moved two doors down. So we, my father-in-law helped with, get his tractor, so we uh, disassembled it into a couple pieces, moved it to our house, and our kids are beyond ex excited. That is awesome. It's always great when you do that. Like you feel like you really accomplished something. I actually did something similar when I moved into my house. We, uh, so one of our neighbors gave us their playset, and my dad did the exact same thing. He got his tractor. We helped and um, moved it over here. And you, yeah, the kids are super excited, aren't they? Yes, especially since I had promised at some point that I was going to build a treehouse. This is kind of a, a band aid to that uh, un unfulfilled. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a distraction, if you will. A happy distraction. Very happy. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to, uh, I think this kind of leads into our topic as you wanted to kind of go into the aspect of consumerism. And I think if you think about reusing play sets, I mean, you can reuse lots of things. Um, I've kind of gotten into buying uh, used books, especially if they're in good condition. Um, and so I, I know you, we've kind of talked about this, like this idea of consumerism. And, and I, I don't know if you've got a good definition of it. Uh, I'm still working on that. Honestly, I was, I was asking that question last night of what is consumerism. I was talking with some, some younger people. They're in this band that plays locally. And, uh, I think one went to UVA, one of them went to somewhere else. They're recent college graduates. I think one's a history teacher, if I'm mistaken. And I asked, you know, they brought up consumerism a couple of times in the context of where I was talking about how kind of corporations like make decisions for people based on you know the economic situation that they they kind of run along with like advertising and all this different thing and they just you know compete con consumerism and i'm like is consumerism like the way corporations shape people and like keep them feeding you know because like the corporation feeds itself right so i That's think consumerism is yeah i push back and I, w I would say there's probably a difference between uh, the the whole aspect of where corporations, I mean, and I think our our modern consumer market is so driven by corporations. But I, I mean, if you go back and you kind of read about the the cottage industries that would happen in people's houses, I mean, like people would um, they'd get wool, talked about wool, they spin it in their homes, um, and then whatever they didn't produce in their own, they would put it out into the market and see if other people wanted it. Um, so there was kind of there was a, a nascent consumerism in America, and I imagine this happened all over the world, especially in Europe where you kind of are producing for yourself and then there are needs that are unmet in what you can produce and then there are excesses in what you produce and you you kind of throw that out to the, the market at large to see if you can balance that mismatch of what you need and what you produce. Um, and so that's that's kind of where I would think of consumerism in, in sort of a, a neither negative nor positive sense, but just sort of the idea of I need to consume things that I don't I don't actually make and then I, I may actually make things that um, that I, I can't use all of and I can actually help other people and, and give them to, to them for and I, you know the money system is kind of that the uh, the grease that helps facilitate all that yeah I mean I think what consumerism does though is consumerism like reshapes people thinking about wants as needs right is like now you're your desires have changed and it's more into like you have to do this everything is a right now like we are owed this it's part of our society we've been given it and now it's mine and you can't take it away um 
But in reality, we really don't need a lot of the things that they say we need, do we? There's a lot of things that we can do without. Um, and I think if you, you know, if, if you think about dieting, so much of that is just sort of realizing that you actually don't need as many calories as you consume and you can actually survive for a long time uh, with a lower amount of, of calories. And I think you could draw a similar uh, image to sort of just day-to-day -day things of, you know, maybe I don't need a, a coffee every morning or a fancy coffee or, you know, like those different gradations to all that. Well, and, and I think another thing is, is, is we created this system where it was more, 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 more. And it became easier to throw something away and buy it new because it's cheaper than it is to pay somebody. Like corporations are kind of like, they're just make everything like convenient. So there's no thinking. It's just like, hey, just if you need something, you got this warranty, just throw it out. You got a new one. Just keep on giving us money all the time because everything that we provide you is a need. Um, and we're kind of like just keeping, I, I, would, I hate to say this, but like you're kind of just giving away a lot of your power, right? When you're so dependent on all of these other you know, corporations to like live your life is like, what happens if they don't do well? <laughs> you know, like, what do we do? Isn't there a story with the Edison light bulb? Like the, the, one of the original bulbs is still burning. And at some point General Electric or whoever was producing them decided that they weren't going to sell enough light bulbs. So they deliberately manufactured the bulbs with a certain lifespan that they would die out after like 10,000 hours or something. I've heard that before. I haven't. I haven't fact checked that. That's interesting. I need to. I need to look that up. Pull out like an Edison biography. I'm sure it's in there somewhere, right? <laughs> or, or Wikipedia. Yeah. Well, you know, but I want to read the whole story. <laughs> so I think. Um, I, I guess I do like your idea of the consumerism. Is sort of. I guess it's not the production and the the moving things around. I, maybe you could say that's more just mark free market um, capitalism, yeah, I think, I think as uh, as Marx would say. But I think it is maybe that, um, again, a, an ideology of some sorts, an idea that we have to have these things and we can't live without these things. Is that what you, you, you would kind of put it more like that? Well, I mean, yeah. And then look at it is like now the corporations, like the governments bail them out when they like it's so important. And, you know, or the governments, you know, will help pay the labor so they can keep running when we close down everything else. But small businesses, you know, like. I mean, yeah, they did the PPP loans, but it's a lot harder to get through as a small business than as a corporation. They gave a lot more money to corporations, and a lot of them didn't really need it either. You know, that's well, one of the challenges of the PPP loans was uh, the lo you had to have a, an existing credit with a bank, and so you know, if you're a small business that's able to run uh, in an efficient way where you don't need to take out any kind of liquidity, you know, you don't need to borrow any money, you were actually at a disadvantage throughout that whole PPP process because the bank couldn't trust you necessarily or there just was extra uh paperwork that had to be filled out, figured out in the meantime everything is shut down and you desperately need money to pay your employees because uh, everyone's said it it's you can't be open yeah yeah that was not a fun time i own a small business so <laughs> it was challenging and it's still challenging honestly um all right so so jeff I guess, one other thing are I there corporations to... in your life that are making things worse for you you know, I mean, like as far as business wise, there's no one. I mean, it, it's just the structure. It's just like it's the mentality that shapes people into thinking that things have to be a certain way. Like, you know, Amazon, Amazon Prime, like 
kind of shifted everybody's mindset that they could get it tomorrow. And like the reality is, is like this is not feasible. The reason that a lot of these businesses like start up like that and, and promise these like really fast dates is because they're trying to cut the market. But once they like once they become the market now, like notice that Prime is taking just a little bit longer right now than it used to and they're trying to push people away from it it's because they were doing something that they knew was unreasonable and it shaped business because now when somebody comes into my shop they're like can i get it tomorrow <laughs> i need it in two days right and it's like we're a two-week turnaround and now with the supply chain issues you know, two weeks is is generous sometimes it takes five days to get garments in and so it's just that mentality that corporations instills that like you the consumer are always right and you, the consumer, don't have to do anything. You show up, and we will just send you away with everything that you need. And the reality is, is that how do you know what they need? You're not listening to them. You like you don't ask them any questions. You prepackaged the material for them and said, here, these are your options. Buy them. You know, like corporations and consumerism is about less choices, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's kind of oh, that transitions nicely into one of the other things, right? Corporate power. I compare corporate power to like a monarchy. Right. They, it's this, it's an authoritarian type of power structure. And as long as they can keep their people happy, as long as they keep them fed and fat, everything's good. But the moment part of that structure starts to break down a little bit, now you get a lot of really like angry people as opposed to like a partnership or a small business in Republican government where you keep the, the people. Basically, the idea is to keep the power as close to people as possible, even in Republican government, you know, giving them part of the power with the representation. Um, and I just think, you know, that's that's why you get angry customer service people. Mm -hmm. You call in, you can't get help. And the person that's trying to help you really has no power and they don't really they don't train them well. They don't really care because it's just a dead end. And they either if if it's cheaper to give them the money or give it whatever for free, Amazon's really good at this. Everybody's like, Amazon's got great customer service. It's like, yeah, because they don't ask any questions and they just give it back to you. Again, they're setting an unfair expectation in the marketplace for small businesses. You know how many people will take advantage of that? Like wow. Amazon, Amazon, Amazon doesn't care because they're not trying to make money that way. They're making money a different way. <laughs> You know, and they're and they're not really competing in the same market, and but yet they're setting the expectations for the market. So actually, I think uh, there's a good example that is kind of the craft brew brewery scene. Um, you know, you've got big brewers like uh, Budweiser, uh, Miller, Coors, and now they're basically they're all owned by the same company except for in the United States. Um, so you literally have one company that produces almost all the the mass market for beer, and that's Imbev. And then in the United States, because of antitrust concerns, they had to make the Miller Coors subsidiary when InBev bought them, um, sort of a different business. So they, there's two companies that quote unquote compete, uh, even though they have a, the same parent international uh, company that, that runs both of them. Um, but then, so you've got big behemoths, big corporations, but then you've got a lot of small brewers that are kind of upset with that kind of, uh, someone I was talking about last night at a party, it's kind of basically like seltzer, like it's, it's very uh, weak tasting, very um, plain. And so you have all these craft brewers that come along and they say, well, we, we actually, you know, we've been brewing beer on our own. We've got some great recipes. We want to try this. And they get incredibly successful because people uh, like that competition. They like different flavors. They like different ideas. They kind of like the branding that goes along with it. Like craft brewing branding is very creative because it, it's, it's, you know, you're competing on the same like uh, barley, hops, yeast, and water. And it's just, you know, what kind of variations can you take on that? So the marketing aspect is an interesting part of that. 
But then what these what the big uh, brewing companies have been doing is they've been sort of they buy stakes in those small companies, and usually that's for distribution purposes. And again, who who I mean, you know, you probably can go on the, who wrote those distribution laws. And mm-hmm. so they, you know, the the easy money comes in, they get the distribution rights, they grow and grow and grow, and then they basically become subsumed as a small brand of one of these bigger companies because that's the easier way to do it, and then it's a way to cash out for the founders. And then you're back to the same thing where you've got two beer companies running and producing almost all the beer. Um, yeah, and they take up all your choices. Mm-hmm. They, they 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 just buy up all your choices, right? Um, the corporations do. And eventually, if they keep on doing that and they keep on closing out the market, it would be harder and harder for those small breweries, those small businesses to enter the market, um, especially kind of how wrapped around the corporations have gotten with politics of late, don't you think? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, just the, the laws around it. Um, I think one of the interesting loopholes in Loudoun County and elsewhere is the farm brewery, where if you just declare yourself a farm brewery, and you know there's very limited, very few rules about that. You you uh, you don't have to pay permits to build the, uh, things. You don't have to get the same kind of ABC license. You don't have the same distribution problems, and um, that allows all these little different uh, companies to flourish and to kind of compete on the experience and and the. And so I'm, I'm curious to see how that'll get pushed back. I was reading the local newspaper and there was some, some hemming and hawing about how you don't actually have to grow anything on these farm breweries. You just have to kind of be a, a farm in, uh, in order to get that status. So I'm sure there'll be some lobbying efforts in order to, to clean that up and make it harder for the little guy. Right. And so, like, how does the little guy get his voice heard? You know, like if, if, if these big corporations, they're able to donate lots of money to politicians, political PACs, they can get in the room with them. They can they can call them up on their phone. They live in the same city. They can fly them into wherever they want. If you're a regular guy, how do you how do you get your voice heard? Right. And so what did our founders thought? It was the House of Representatives. But they've created this like. Well, we've talked about before, it's too small. There's not enough of them. They've created this barrier of wealth around them. And like, what are people to do? You know, we've talked about Andrew Yang. He's starting a third party. He put out there, he's like, hey, um, how many parties do you think we should have, right? Somebody's like, how many people do you think we should have in the house? (laughs) (laughs) Because what is more important, the right of representation as a people in your government or the number of parties that you have that represent that representation um i would argue the right of representation is way more important yeah i mean you could almost say that's a first amendment thing of some way having your voice heard and not allowing it to be stifled in a in a way that did you 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 said first amendment did you know that the article the first the real first amendment the one that it didn't get ratified was about expanding the house did yes. you know that? Yes. Okay. I love telling right, people right. that too, because it fits so well into what we're trying to talk about. <laughs> sort of the, you know, because you know everyone's like, "Oh, the First Amendment—that's it's so key." And you're like, "Well, what if I told?" And I, I guess I'm a computer scientist, so it'd be funny. You know, you could say this is like the zero with amendment, because everything in computer counting in computers starts at zero. So it's it's kind of Ooh, that. It is. It really is like the zero one. That like if you like when you go back and you read Madison's notes and you read the Federalist Papers, like what you get a sense of is like representation was like the most heatedly discussed topic during the whole thing, whether it be about the size of the house, whether it be about the three fifths 
uh, compromise, whether it be about the Senate represents like it was it was always about representation. And here we are like you and I were like talking about it and nobody wants to listen. Like our founders thought it was important. And, you know, we're Republicans. Right. And our Republican friends are out there like crying about how one side is trying to, to smear our founders. And it's like we're trying to like amplify their voice here. The First Amendment the zero amendment. I like it. We can call it that. We can call it the zero amendment. <laughs> Sorry, it's a good marketing Go behind that, man. <laughs> well, hey, that's how you do it now. Mm-hmm. Everything's advertising now. You got to market it. The good ideas aren't aren't, aren't anything. <laughs> that's right. Someone was talking about Liz Cheney's future presidential run, and the, you know, they was like, well, she's not going to do anything, but she's going to get a lot of media attention. I mean, like that, and that's just it's so it's so sad that that's what it comes down to is how do you what free media attention do you get that then uh, allows you to rake in more money that you can spend on paid media attention? You know, there's the whole cycle is I got to be in people's faces all the time. Um, and I'm, I saw that on my part of the congressional campaign. People were saying, you got to text, you got to text. Um, so I built a little system to send out text messages and stuff. And I was kind of, I didn't really think it would, it would work that well. And I think in the end it, it didn't work because it's just annoying people. Um, I mean, yes, you've got a direct connection to their phone, and of course, they have to look at the text because it buzzed in their phone. But a lot of them just, you know, unsubscribe. They stop. I mean, I have ended up unsubscribing from countless political text message lists just because they're annoying. And like, you know, it's very much a, an unsolicited uh, and it breaks your conscience, conscience, conscious. I mean, I agree. I was always against that. I, I still get text messages like I was getting text messages for people in like December for the race. And it's just like over and over again and then as close closer you get to the elections the more and more you get and it's like you just tune them out and i think that's honestly i think that's part of their strategy i think their goal is is to tune everybody out that like wants to think about the issues and like discuss the issues and take the issues seriously and then the only people they'll be left with are the people that are like just hardcore they're they're like they're foot soldiers they're loyal they're you know they've tuned everybody else out and they've decided the other side is wrong and they're going to, they're at battle. Right. And mm-hmm. it kind of makes it tough. Doesn't it? Team sports, <laughs> team sports, team sports. Oh man. It's been a good week. Hasn't it? Mm-hmm. I don't know. But uh, school starting soon. So I don't know how you feel about that. I'm, I'm ready for summer to end, even though I work at a school and it's going to mean that uh, my vacation is kind of over, but I'm ready to get back to a, schedule and uh, just the day in and day out um, of uh, having things to do, passwords to reset. Passwords. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how I feel about it. You know, you know how I feel about the education system. We talked, we've talked about that before, but you know, it is nice. I'm excited. So my twins are going to school for the first time. So yay, me and my wife get a mortgage payment back that was going to daycare. <laughs> Plus, we get consistent daycare because we were only paying for three days a week before. So now, now the kids are out of the house, so my wife can have more time to like actually work, um, not having to watch them two days a week on top of working. Um, but you know, there's a lot of fear into going to school, right? I mean, am I sending my kids in the right environment? Is the, what the public school system providing the right environment? And I don't know. I think in the younger age, I think they do a really good job, like the the kindergarten and stuff. So I'm not too worried for the next year. It's it's coming up in the middle school ages. I think they're kind of struggling more at, but it, 
as a parent, you, you got a little bit more like my son and my daughter, both 12, we spent a lot of summer reading and, and writing together and, and talking these things through. Um, so they're prepared in, and, and we, we, we discuss big events and, and real topics. And I think they kind of avoid those in, to some degree, or they kind of shape them in a certain way in mm-hmm. school. And I think it's, it's good to have a dissenting voice. You know, in your kid's ear, if you will. You know, that's what I say about politics. You want a dissenting voice inside your party if you want to be successful. If you want your children to be educated, you need to put a dissenting voice in theirs because no matter what they're being taught, there's so much history. There's so much of life. There's always a different perspective, don't you think? Yeah, and I think um, part of learning, too, is that you're trying – I mean, like there's the the metaphor of the three blind men and the elephant and they all – you know, one grabs the nose – one grabs the tail and the other grabs the feet and they all kind of, they're looking at the same thing, but they describe it different ways. And I think education is so much of that where you can say, and you know, math is pretty cut and, is generally pretty cut and dry. But when you're talking about history, when you're talking about English and writing, where there's a lot more subjectivity to that, I think that's where having um, uh, different, different ideas in that can, can be helpful. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, you as a parent, are ultimately responsible for what your children study. And so it's it's key to, to be involved and to know what books they're reading, what the curriculum has. Um, and then, you know, and as you said, like being a, a voice in their ear to kind of guide them through that, because even if it's 100% unobjectionable, um, you know, maybe you can, you have a different, you can have sweeten it or something. You can make it uh, more palliative, 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 um, so that they understand it better, and so they get more out of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I think I think a lot of what the school system does is like they teach information, and they don't teach knowledge. And and by information, I mean just like think of a, a piece of paper, a graph paper, and you got a whole bunch of dots just randomly on there. They know the moments. They don't necessarily know the order. They don't necessarily know how they connect. And and what knowledge is is connecting all those dots. It's understanding the moments, but more importantly, understanding why the moments happened and that's a lot of what i find myself doing with my older kids sometimes is they'll come home and i learned about jamestown i learned about the american revolution i learned and and you say what did you learn why did why did we do this uh taxes (laughs) Mm, no i would disagree with that what do you think why did we have the american revolution representation representation we wanted to expand the parliament they wouldn't let us We want it. So we look. They were taxing us, and we want it. We want it to have a say in those taxes. We're like, look, it's okay. We understand that's part of government, but we should have a have a voice. And they said no. And then they threw the tea out. And then the and then we were at war. But you know, back to the school thing. Those are the type of things that I find myself talking to my kids about. Is the why? Because the school is doing a, doing a job, and it's the SOL teaches this right know the answer multiple choice these are your answers you have to know this specific information doesn't really matter why um and i think that's kind of a little bit of a fear of a parent you know you give people information without telling them why it can be dangerous yeah i you know and i i think we've talked about a little bit about this before i do think that knowing those facts is incredibly important because if you don't that, that is sort of the foundation that you build the why from and if you don't understand that Jamestown happened, that the people came from England, uh, sort of the time of where it is, the context for it, then, it, you know, it, it doesn't make as much sense when you start talking about representation, you know, then it become, I think, um, 
and Lincoln was so good about this sort of drawing things down to that that like what you can touch and what you can taste and what you can feel and so you need those facts as that that human component for it and then you can build big ideas on top of that right absolutely speaking of Lincoln did you finish that book did you finish Team Arrival no, I got, yet? I got, it's been a busy weekend. I'm almost done. Oh, almost done, come I promise. on. All right. All right. All right. Did anything, uh, anything really stick out with you Have you um, that you wanted to share? I mean, I, I'm at the point. I mean, I'm like almost done. Like he, he just died. So uh, spoiler alert, oh, Lincoln dies. Um, that really broke my heart. And I, you know what I didn't know when I read that story is the other assassination plots. Mm-hmm. So I had read a book about Lincoln when I was in high school for summer reading. And again, it was just sort of the last days of his life. It was incredibly compelling. I think it was one of the few books I'd actually like stayed up late to read and to finish because I was so drawn into that story. But I think what has hit me the most this time is the love that people had around him, that people had people around him had for him. And I think if, you know, if you go back to, if you think about our current leaders and stuff, I I don't know if anyone would kind of get that outpouring. I mean, like, you know, Bob Dole dies and everyone has their sappy tweets about, oh, you know, he was a senator. It's so sad he leaves. But I don't think people really love our politicians. And I think one of the, the amazing things about Lincoln was that he rarely said anything negatively to someone. And so often he just kind of, he was patient around things. Like if he was in a, a sticky situation, rather than kind of, taking the first thing that went to his head, um, he would just kind of wait on it and sit on it. And a lot of people didn't like him doing that. They wanted action. But I think overall, that's a better strategy because, you know, going back to the concrete details, you don't always know the details. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, you know, he's, he's a melancholic, just like you, Jeff. So, <laughs> Yeah, but he's more patient than I am. I'm, I'm definitely like, so I've adapted that actually as reading i noticed that that was a quality like washington had lincoln had that was a really strong quality that good leaders have and so like i've actually adapted myself into being able to do that most of the time now but i am still a very passionate man and and i'm a, i'm you know at heart i'm a jefferson i'm a hamilton right i burn deep um i'm even an adams to a degree like he you know he would spout off at the mouth every once in a while um and you know that's kind of who i am but I admire that quality of Lincoln. I kind of wish I had a little bit more of that of me. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it, you know, that's one of those things that just takes practice. And I imagine he got a lot of practice uh, riding, riding the circuit in Illinois and doing all these court cases and things. And so just being around people, you know, we're both, we're very young compared to him. So, um, well, yeah. That's true. I'm still just a child, as I tell my kids. I, you know, I said, look, you guys are kids, and I'm trying to teach you to be an adult. I'm an adult, but I'm kind of still just a child. We're all just children, you know? <laughs> yeah, we're all growing. Um, we're all growing. Uh, so, you know, I got that John Quincy Adams uh, diary for my oh, birthday. Tell, it came in. Tell. Yeah, so you want to hear something really cool? So this is, uh, this is a, uh, from his diary. It says, the fashion of peddling for popularity by traveling around the country, gathering crowds together, hawking for public dinners, and spouting empty speeches is growing into high fashion. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the change in politics. Remember what I was saying in my la in that other piece where I was talking about how the corrupt bargain shifted American politics forever? This is in his diary. Mm -hmm. Like he recognized it as it was happening. 
And like, look where we are now because those empty speeches have turned into empty advertisements and empty promises. And now we're sitting here underrepresented with a barrier of wealth between us and power. And John Quincy was trying to warn us all along. What was the date for that entry? Is that kind of before or after he's president? Oh, this is he's in Congress. This okay. is a uh, this is I don't have the exact date here. I'll have to pull the I took a picture of it. And I don't have the book open in front of me, but I'll pull it. I'll I'll I don't know, can we add it to the notes or something like that? I'll take a picture of the whole page with the diary entry, but I don't know. It's really it's really interesting. There's another section in here and if I can find it I'll read it because it just shows uh like how much John Quincy disdained John uh John Calhoun. You you know Calhoun's story? He's one of the fire eaters, right? From South Carolina? So yeah, he's from South he was vice president under Jackson and during the nullification, um, he left the vice presidency and went to South Carolina to fight for nullification. Mm-hmm. And um so this is this is from uh, John Quincy's entries. He goes, this is right after I think uh, Calhoun left the uh, and went back to the Senate. He says, Mr. Calhoun's speech of 15 February upon the enforcement bill is published in the Telegraph. It contains his system of nullification. His learning is shallow, his mind argumentative, and his assumption of principle destitute of discernment. His insanity begins with his principles from which his deductions are ingeniously drawn and i was like man this guy hated john c calhoun (laughs) and he and he was right you know we talk about that on the left a little bit where there's like judicial like what do they call that um judicial wizardry where they're making things no no judicial activism yes activism where they're like trying to make something like constitutional when it's not constitutional or whatever um that's kind of what john calhoun was doing you know from the beginning and like john quincy's like dude i was there man like i'm one of the only people left that was there and i know you're lying <laughs> yeah i think so he was in congress after his presidency so he was this was would have been yeah so during as you're saying andrew jackson who beat him out um and so he's you know he knows what the presidency's like he, as you said, he was there from the beginning with his, you know, helping his father. So he, he's seen it all. He's kind of the last remnant from that revolutionary period trying to fix that final wrong uh, in our country's makeup. That's right. And, and that's exactly what it was. Like our founders always had the intent to abolish slavery. It was always, that was, again, go back to Madison's notes and read what most of the people in the room were saying about slavery. Most of them abhorred it. And, you know, they were accepting of it, but they did not want it. Um, And so this was Calhoun, you know, set off like the, like I said before, to further slavery, to to preserve it. Um, This was, this is one other passage I want to share with you about Calhoun's argument. He goes, his argument was to prove that the government of the United States was a government of the people and not a compact between the states. It is both. Mm -hmm. It is both. It is both federal and national. <laughs> like it's over and over again in in the Federalist Papers. You know, Madison talked about it in the uh, Virginia Resolutions, and here's Calhoun again making this argument that has been proven wrong constantly, and it happened for the next fifty years. It still boggles my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean the this, the the makeup of the legislative body is the perfect representation of that. You've got 
the states in the Senate and you've got the people in their House of Representatives. Uh, and, you know, going back to the fights for the during the makeup of the Constitution, like people wanted to find out that right balance of representation. And you had small states that were scared of getting squeezed out by the big states. And so they pushed really hard for that equal representation in the Senate. And then they were kind of allowed sort of the people's voice in the people's house. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I've been thinking a lot about the 17th Amendment. Have you been thinking about the 17th Amendment? Too much. <laughs> because, because, I mean, think about it. If the people elect the senators, then who represents the states? Mm -hmm. Is no that one. how it's supposed to work? No one, right? The, and the state AGs represent the state when they file lawsuits against things they don't like. <laughs> Which is such a, I mean, that's such a, a terrible, I mean, it's a waste of taxpayer money because now you're having lawsuits about everything and everyone's fighting each other. Whereas, and, and you know, there isn't real deliberation or um, a, a kind of a healthy compromise or a healthy solution in that. It's just sort of like who wins the court case. And now you've got, again, yeah. the, the whole team dynamic of winners and losers rather than everyone Ooh. being a winner or everyone, you know, being a loser and whatever this. Um, and there isn't that ability for people to, to work together. No, there isn't. It's disappointing. I wish people would talk about that, you know, how the government's supposed to work, how we've broken it over a few hundred years and how we could fix it. Man, I wish there's just two people out there that were just talking about it every day with books and weird facts about presidents. <laughs> we're bringing people along. Bird by bird. All right. Bird by bird. Well, I think this was a good episode, John. What do you think? I think it was great. Yeah. We kind of strayed a little bit on the parenting subject. Somehow we got back into politics. It's I don't your know. Family Maybe. is a government, Jeff. That's gonna be. That's my <laughs> new motto. Family. I mean, family is an authoritarian kind of government structure with, you know, maybe a. I don't know. It's complicated. <laughs> and that's what we're talking about. All right. That's right. Um. So, what are we saying here at the end? We want people to subscribe to our our podcast. I think you can follow on. We're on Apple and Spotify. Um, rate the show. I hear if you rate the show, it makes people like find the show better. Um, share the show with your friends. We talk about very different things. I think that if you listen to our show, you're bound to learn something, some really inane fact. So if you're out there and you're like, I love really strange facts to embrace my friends, well then come listen to our podcast. It's enjoyable, right? <laughs> Even if it's about tractors then, moving uh, playsets. I mean, who knew? Who knew? Yeah, exactly. And then uh, we both write a Substack, Politics and Parenting. Go subscribe to that. Share our articles. Help amplify our voice. And, um, you know, have a good week. What, what about you? You got anything to say add there, John? Yeah, everyone, uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for taking the time. We, I, I appreciate it. Jeff does, too. And, um, you know, brick by brick, bird by bird. Just, this whole thing is going to be an effort and patience and perseverance. Awesome. Peace and love, guys. Thanks, everyone.